You know, I've been around a long time. I know how hard this is. From the political science department at UW-Madison. Am I exasperated? Absolutely, I'm exasperated. I'm Adam Wigger. This country's gone through tough times before, and we're going to do it again. And I'm Sam Beisman. This is more work than in my previous life. I thought it would be easier. And this is 1050 Bascom. Today on 1050 Bascom, we are privileged to have the opportunity to talk to political science alumni Katie Harbeth. Katie graduated from the UW-Madison School of Journalism and was also a poli-sci major in 2003. We talked to Katie about her time on campus as well as her accomplished career trajectory from high-level politics to Facebook, where she served as the public policy director for 10 years and now in her new role as founder and CEO of her own D.C.-based Anchor Change, and as a fellow at the Bipartisan Policy Center. There's so much to talk about, so let's dive right in. First things first, thank you so much for joining us today on 1050 Bascom. It's so great to have you. Thank you for having me. It's super exciting. We're just happy to get to spend some time with you this afternoon. But first, we want to talk broadly and talk about your start in terms of your background and maybe how you came to choose your major at UW-Madison. What was your thinking when you were thinking about what did you want to do after college and how you were eventually going to turn your journalism and political science studies into a, a life and a professional narrative? Yeah, great question. So I am originally from Green Bay, Wisconsin. A lot of my family is still is still there. And my first thoughts about wanting to go into journalism were actually quite young for me. They were in middle school. The Brown County Library had a contest one year, one summer, that for every, I think it was thousand, hundred or thousand pages you read, you could put your name in to win a variety of prizes. One of those prizes was a tour of the Green Bay Press Gazette. And I put all of my, I love to read, I put all of my tickets into that one. And my mom and I got to go get a tour of the paper with the political cartoonist, Joe Heller, um, who was a longtime political cartoonist there. And so at the end of the tour, we were back in his office and he was asking me the thing, anybody asks a middle schooler, what do you want to do when you grow up? And at that point in time, I thought I wanted to be a journalist. And he goes, well, let me go introduce you to Terry. Terry was running the teen section of the newspaper and they were looking for teen writers. And so I started writing for the Green Bay Press Gazette when I was probably in like seventh or, or eighth grade. And so then throughout high school at Bayport High, go Pirates, I did a lot of different things, but I wrote for the student newspaper and was editor in chief my senior year. So when it came time to actually apply to schools, Madison was actually the only one I applied to. I knew I wanted to stay in state. It had a good journalism school that I knew of. I also liked that it had two student newspapers. So I thought double the chances of being able to go into the profession. And so I actually came into Madison knowing that I wanted to go into journalism. Now the twist in all this came once I got to Madison. So I get to Madison, I go to the Herald right away because my cousin told me that was the cooler one, no offense to my Daily Cardinal friends. Uh, you know, I started writing for them. Two things happened, uh, two main things happened that sort of very much, well, actually three, that very much shifted my career path. And some of this is where a door closes, a window opens types things. 
One is in 2000, when I got into J, J school, um, it was the first year that they introduced, they had restructured the whole curriculum and had the J202 class with Katie Culver. So this is back in 2000. And it was the first kind of multimedia type restructuring they were trying to do. And Katie made me be, um, at the end of the semester, you had this big project and you had to create a website with Dreamweaver. Like uh, for those of you who have no idea what Dreamweaver is, but it's a very clunky, clunky way of making a website. It was not easy at all. So I had to be the webmaster and I hated it because I thought I was going to be a print journalist. I was like, why are you making me learn this? I was not a happy camper. She um, likes to remind me of this all the time <laughs> for where my career ended up going. The second thing that happened is at the Herald, I started to meet some individuals that were also very involved in politics. And so they were, there's one gentleman in particular who I'm still very good friends with, Alex Conant was the editor in chief. And he was like, you don't wanna cover school boards for the rest of your life. You don't want to do that. You're gonna have a lot more, you should think of political communication. And I had already added poli on as my major because you needed so many social science credits in order to get a journalism degree anyways it's kind of dumb to not do a double major so then what ended up happening was i started thinking about that i didn't get editor-in-chief of the badger herald for my senior year and so i had to find something else to do with myself for my senior year so i ended up interning at the wisconsin state republican party and my friend alex and a few others went and had worked on norm coleman's 2002 senate race in minnesota for those of you who can remember that, that is the year that Paul Wellstone, the incumbent, died in a plane crash two weeks before the election. But I had been out there, Alex had me coming out there to volunteer and stuff like that, and I caught the political bug. So when I graduated high school, not high school, when I graduated college, UW, I no longer was trying to find a journalism job, I was trying to find a political communications job, and I knew I wanted to move to DC. And everyone said that if you want to move to DC, you just need to, you really need to move out there. And so in the summer of 2003, friend and I packed up our cars and moved out here to Washington. That is such a universal experience, especially with J202 with Katie Culver. I can say for certain Sam and I felt the same way. I was also on the webmaster team, so I know exactly how you feel. Can you tell us a little bit now about you know, how your professional career kind of unfolded after you moved out to Washington and tell us a little bit about, you know, all the really fascinating things you have done since then. I always like to tell people to kind of put this in context. Facebook, the company I just recently spent 10 years at, did not exist when I graduated from UW, which is kind of a crazy thing to, to think about. And my first job, the state party had given my resume to the Republican National Committee. And I got a job there and originally was just answering phones for the comms team and being the bright eyed recent graduate that I was decided to write a memo to my boss of all this stuff I thought we should be doing online. Because as I had been coming into the RNC, the gentleman who had been running their web operation had just moved over to President Bush's reelect. So he was like, this is all great. Congratulations. It's yours. And so I had to figure out we didn't have much money for stuff. So I figured out how to do everything from, this is where 202 came in. Don't tell Katie a little bit of it now, but do. It was like, so I learned how, I had to do video editing, which I learned how to do, you know, in, in J202. I had to teach myself HTML, which I had learned the basics of in Dreamweaver. I had to, I was learning flash video. I was learning how to send an email. 
all those different types of things at the at the RNC. And 2004, that election um, was President Bush versus Senator John Kerry. And it was really the first one where you also started to see bloggers come on the scene, right? With them, a lot of them, um, the most famous thing was them unveiling some, you know, basically getting Dan Rather kicked off of CBS for some of the things he had said about President Bush's military record. So post uh, 2004, the RNC decided to make the e-campaign department <laughs> um, permanent. And I spent a year doing that. I then wanted to, getting on the record and being a press secretary is something that's like, can be very hard when you're first getting started. And so and I was also like, I don't know if this digital thing is really going to last. I wanted to be careful not to get pigeonholed. And so I went to the house where I got some press secretary experience, but I realized that working in Congress wasn't necessarily my jam. I kind of like doing the campaigning stuff a lot more. And so, and I wanted to get experience on a bunch of different campaigns. So over the years, all of the jobs I should say I've had to since that press secretary one, they never existed before I had them. So I've had the privilege of being able to create my career, which can be both a scary thing, but also a super fun thing where you really get to blaze the trail of what does this look like. And so worked on a house race, worked on a presidential, worked at, with, at the senatorial committee. So after the 2010 cycle, <laughs> I had been working with Facebook. Facebook had launched pages in 2000, late 2007, early 2008. And they had a gentleman who had come from a Democratic background who was helping members of Congress and others use the platform. And he knew that there was going to be more Republicans running in the 2012 election because President Obama would be running for reelect and asked if I'd be interested in joining Facebook. And so in February of 2011, I joined Facebook where the first through the 2012 cycle, I was focused on helping Republicans use the platform. And then after 2012, I was starting to think about what I wanted next in my career. And I was, I was juggling between two different things. One was I wanted more international experience. I was like, if I'm going to work in the corporate world, I'd like to get a lot more international experience because that'll make me more marketable. But the RNC was also looking for a new digital director, which was something I had always wanted to do. And so I pitched and put together a plan to expand at Facebook our work internationally. Um, and the kind of similar to when I was at the RNC, they were like, yep, go ahead and do that. So I started in 2013, there were three of us. I started building out a team that did two things. One was again, work with those politicians and stuff on using the platforms. The other was really thinking about and putting together teams from across the company about like, what should the role of social media be when it comes to elections? How should social media be used in debates? How do we help people understand the conversation happening on the platform? What can the role be that the platform can play in helping people know where and when and how to vote? And so the Australian and German elections in 2013 were some of my first international ones. And I started building up and my team got to be we were probably at about 30-ish people that directly reported to me in 2016, but we probably had a couple hundred people across the company that were working on those elections. We did a debate in the U.S. with a co-host one with Fox News and, and Facebook. The general election debate in 16, you had the first question asked in a general election debate based on social media data, um, which was all really cool. But 
um, we all know what happened in 2016. And after President Trump won, there was a huge shift in my job, even though my role, I, I didn't move, move, actually move jobs, but the job shifted to be focused on a lot of the, how do you protect and fix a lot of the election integrity problems that we faced. And so my job turned to um, helping figure out how to build our political ad transparency tools, uh, how you deal with mis and disinformation, how you think about hate speech, all of those different types of things. And I was traveling the world explaining how we were approaching this. We still had more elections. And in 2018, we actually split the team. So we had one team on elections, one team working with the politicians and governments because that work was getting to be getting to be so big on it. And so at, at this point in time, I by when I left Facebook after 10 years, I had I had worked on at least one election in every country that has elections, um, at least once, many countries multiple times. Yeah, and then last month I decided that 10 years and after the 2020 election was done and I turned 40 in November that it was a good time to turn the page and try to venture out on my own and create my own LLC consulting firm and kind of put together a portfolio of projects that I can do in this space. We're really excited to get into all of that. But before we do, you know, a lot of students are listeners of the pod. Do you have advice for students who are looking to kind of pursue the same kind of path that you did or pursue a similar path? Yeah, I, you know, the period for me from about, I would say this point in time when I was a senior until August when I got my RNC job, it, it was, it was difficult. Um, you had this home for four years and I couldn't even have my job at Wisconsin Public Radio that I'd had for a long time. There was a lot of stuff you couldn't do anymore because you weren't a student. And so it's a weird identity shift where you stop, you have to kind of shift yourself out of being a student to now being like, I got to figure out what I'm going to do in the real world, right? So a couple of things that I would I would recommend. First, it's okay to be nervous and to be to be scared. That's normal. Like anybody who, you know, you talk to somebody like me and I just went, I was like, I was so scared. And I remember when I finally made the decision to move out to DC, my dad looked at me and he was like, are you scared? And I was like, yes, very much so. And he's like, just remember, you can always come home. And that was just like a great, like grounding type thing. And it even helped me, like when I had to make the big decision to leave Facebook, like making these leaps are really hard, but there are things you can do to better help prepare yourself that you have a soft landing. So the first thing I would say is talk to as many people as you can. Connect with as many people as you can that are in the space that you might want to work in. I got connected to people that my friends knew or that were alums of the school that professors put me in touch with. I talked to a lot of, I talked to a lot of grads and stuff about some of this. Talk to them to understand what the jobs are out there. What there's a lot of jobs out there you have no idea even thinking about are opportunities. So just talk to a lot of people to try to get a sense of what it is that you you might you might want to do. Make sure you've got your resume all all situated. Like look at search your name on Google. Like make sure you've got the the professional look because people are going to be looking for you. But think about the experiences that you want to get in your career. You're not going to find the perfect job right away. You're starting off. You know you're at entry level. Probably hopefully done some internships and stuff like that. And so. 
it's perfectly, you, you should be okay answering the phones. You should be okay doing those types of work because it's getting your foot in the door um, of what it is that you want to do. And think about the experiences that you want to get, the people that you want to meet that can keep building up your skill set in your portfolio. If you had asked me when I left Madison, I would not have told you that I my dream job was going to be running elections for Facebook. Like again, the company didn't exist. And so for me at first, it was those that I want to get experience on different campaigns. And then I knew that I, I was learning that I liked digital. And then the Facebook thing kind of came along, but all throughout it, the common theme is like, what's the experiences that I want to get that can make me more marketable, et cetera. The last thing I'll, I'll just say too, is it's all about, it's, it's all about really putting your head down and working hard. At least I can say from like the political world and even somewhat the Silicon Valley world, uh, your reputation will precede you. The people that you help or the people that you, that you worked hard, they're going to remember that. And you need those people to help you down the line that when you want to look for different jobs or they're keeping somebody in mind, you want them to be like, oh, you want so-and-so because they're, you know, they worked for me. I've done this. They, they worked for me 10 years ago and they're great. Like you should totally, those connections matter. And what is and how you, the job you do for them when you're actually in it is going to be key to whether or not you're going to get those, you're going to get those key endorsements and stuff. Your career trajectory kind of raises some questions that we'd like to ask you that a lot of political science and a lot of journalism students who are interested in going into political communications have as well. Namely, in your career, right after college, as you said, you started working on some Republican campaigns, uh, including that of Rudy Giuliani. And then additionally, you worked for the RNC. But then after which you were able to work at Facebook, which has not only no partisan affiliation, but additionally tries to kind of prevent, uh, present itself as nonpartisan. And then now you're doing some work in the explicitly nonpartisan or bipartisan sector. So a lot of the dilemmas that students who are recently graduating face is that they're afraid that if they take some job with say a representative of a specific political party, or if they work and attach themselves say to a specific politician, it could hurt them down the line, or it might limit opportunities for them in the future. What advice would you give to students who are maybe kind of facing this dilemma where maybe they're even passionate about working for some representative or on some issue, but they're concerned about what it might mean for their career prospects in the future? Yeah, I think there's a couple of things to that. One, in politics, in the, in the nitty gritty of, of politics, most folks, you got to pick a side. I can't think of a single person. I know people who have switched sides, but once you switch a side, you can't go back to the other, the other side. That's sort of the world of politics. And there are people who have definitely stayed in one side or the other. They may not do campaigns all the time because those are really hard to do. I mean, they're, they take a lot of time. You don't get paid a lot of money. They're great things to do when you're first graduating. And like, but then people will go into like the consulting business or work at an agency and stuff like that. And some people stay with it, stay with it that way. There are others though, many, many, many people that, you know, a company like Facebook, they actually hired me because of my Republican background, because they were looking in the public policy space in particular that many of these, every company, not most, not startups, but like your decent sized companies have public policy teams. 
and they have government affairs teams that are wanting to go work, whether it's at the federal level or the state level, and they need, they know they need to hire people with a mix of political backgrounds and who have those experiences of working with those representatives. So it's actually not a detriment, it is a plus. Like many of the people like to get a public job, policy job at Facebook, we don't hire entry level people. We hire people from the Hill. We hire people with that experience and those relationships. And so um, it's actually a prerequisite sometimes to move into the, into the corporate world than it is a detriment to that. Now, listen, can, can folks that you go to work for end up getting caught in type of scandal? Can they change completely in terms of how they're perceived in the world? Yes, I have two of those on my resume. You mentioned Mayor, Mayor Giuliani. For context, in 2007, Mayor Giuliani was known as America's mayor. He is extremely popular across the country for how he handled 9-11. He was not even seen as a real Republican by many people. It's obviously very different, dif very different today. Has that come back to haunt me? Yes, to the tune of having Rachel Maddow in 2019 do a whole segment on me because that I worked at Facebook and that I once worked for Rudy. Apparently I have so much foresight that I worked for Rudy in 07, knowing that I'd get a job in Facebook in 2011 and knowing that then I'd be able to help Donald Trump win, which I did not help him win. I wanna be very clear, but it's just the conspiracy theories that can happen. It's a little bit a part of being in the world, but I think what has helped me, I hope, is that again, I was talking about, I've been in this town now for so long that my reputation of being a hard worker and my reputation at Facebook of equally helping both sides and making sure we did that. And I had relationships across the aisle um, with both Republicans and with Democrats has helped to, has helped somewhat in terms of that potentially reputational risk of, of a member, like if they do end up doing something bad, not fully looking downward upon me. And there's a lot of folks, listen, in DC, like people get that. They, under, they understand that. It can hurt in, in moving into some other into some other fields. And so I can't say that any job choice in this particular um, realm is going to be risk-free, but there are different ways that you can have your own set of principles and ethics that I can help think help you drive it, you know, navigate yourself through it. Yeah, that is definitely excellent advice for people or for students, you know, looking to get into the same kind of work that you did. Another thing that a lot of students are really interested in knowing about, especially with your career, you know, after that, the the campaign in 2007, I know you went on to work for, you know, DCI, the, the private consulting group, and also the RNC. And, you know, throughout your career, you've, you've uh, switched between public and private work. And a lot of students are also interested in, in, you know, in pursuing both kinds of work. So can you talk to us a little bit about, you know, that how that is, especially in your career, balancing, uh, you know, working in the private sector versus working in the public sector? Yeah, I, you know, DCI group was very similar work to what I was doing on campaigns because putting together public affairs campaigns, you're just doing it for, it could be corporations or other causes um, that you're doing. So it was, so part of the back and forth for me was getting different experiences um, that I wanted to of being able to better understand how different parts of folks that would be involved in politics or public affairs might be doing things in terms of the back and forth. Some of it too was things I learned about myself throughout. Like 
I'm an adrenaline junkie. I like the campaign world and Facebook was like this too, where every day is a little bit different. You're, it's fast moving. It's a lot of hard, but meaningful, meaningful work. The couple of jobs I had where I was like bored, I just, I couldn't handle it. Like it was just not enjoyable. And I learned that's about me. And so then, you know, as I kept moving on, I knew what to look for. The other thing too is now don't get me wrong. Money is very nice. And Facebook has treated me extremely well in what I've, what I've done, but money has never been the first factor in terms of the work that I'm looking to do. It's am I passionate about it? And I actually had to think about this last year when I, somebody suggested to me that maybe I should rebrand myself and not be about elections anymore and not be in that, in that space. And at first I was very appalled. I'm like, what do you mean? Like, <laughs> but I was like, I owe it to myself to actually think about this for my, my career. And so um, I worked with, there are, there's people may know this or they may not know this. There are people who, people whose living is to be career coaches. There's executive coaches, like all of your top CEOs and many other leaders have a coach who helps them to think through their career, helps them to think through issues they might be having, whether it's through what you want to do next. And I actually found one when I was at DCI group in 2009 and I wasn't quite sure. I was feeling a little lost. I wasn't sure where to take the next best step. And I invested in myself and I spent money on a coach and I found a really great one that helped me, helped me a ton. And ever since then, you know, whether it was Facebook, sometimes offer them, I've found ones on my own. A coach can really help you to give you the right questions for you to consider and ask to think through about what the right kind of work and stuff for you might be. And so I was like, I did some of that. And I was like, no, I want to work elections and democracy and tech and civic. Like that's my jam. That's what I want to, that's what I want to do. The last thing I'll recommend to you is there are various tools out there to, they're usually called strengths finders tools. Um, there, there's various ones out there. If folks have not taken those, I can, I find them to be pretty enlightening around what your strengths are and what you could, the strengths that you can bring to a job and where there might be areas that you may be less as not as strong in, which is okay. You're not going to be strong in everything, but it's important to understand where your strengths are and where your weaknesses are. Kind of expanding from that, I, I want to pivot a little bit and ask about your time at Facebook, because I mean, Facebook got to be one of the most interesting and fascinating companies in the world. I mean, so much so that David Fincher made a movie about it, right? Um, and you were the that public- That was in 2010 when it wasn't even, not as interesting as it is today. They need like a part two. I know. And let's do this. Let's mock up a little uh, rough screenplay right now because <laughs> you were the public policy director there for, for 10 years through two incredibly tumultuous polarizing and someone might even go as far to say damaging elections in which the company was front and center in the public discourse surrounding the elections. So if we were to release the social network to Jesse Eisenberg is to reprise his role, what would kind of the story be? Can you talk about the evolution of the company during your time there and in, in the context of what you did and maybe even how your role grew and evolved and also who would play you? Always a good question. I like uh, Kate Winslet or Charlie's Theron tend to be my celebrity doppelgangers. So um, I won't be too picky, but those would be two that I would I would love. Um, plus I love Aaron Sorkin. Um, so I, I hope that he is reprising his role as a screenwriter as well. 
I would start the movie at the IPO. I would start the movie at when we went public in, in 2012, because around that time uh, we went public, it was a pretty rocky going public. We opened at what, 35, 40 bucks a share and it tanked down to 17. The NASDAQ, something went wrong in NASDAQ. Like it was not, we, we started the morning pretty happy. <laughs> we ended the day feeling pretty not so great. Um, this was also around the time that they bought Instagram and the amount of money that he paid for Instagram was, was pretty crazy. That was, and that was also a presidential year in and of itself, right? 2012 was. That was also a year that was a big shift to mobile. There was a point in time, I think it was towards the end of that year that Mark was like, we're going to put a ton of resources into making the mobile app better. Everybody had to give him screenshots that were mobile friendly, stuff like that. And so I think you would need to open it up there. I think I would also do some flash, either flash forwards or flashbacks. Again, I'm doing this totally impromptu right now, but um, there are decisions that the company made during that time frame around the social graph and or open graph that they called it that come back to haunt us with the Cambridge Analytica stuff in 2018. So during that 2012 election, President Obama was lauded for using the social graph so that rather than asking people to call strangers, they would ask you to reach out to your friends. Folks that were pushing um, at this point in time too, a lot of states were considering ballot referendums about whether or not gay marriage should be legal. And uh, proponents of that legislation were using the social graph because it was they were seeing that if people knew somebody that was close to them that was gay, or they knew of somebody who was, but if you could make that social connection, it made it more likely that people were going to support that ballot initiative. However, that also opened up, you had a researcher, Alexander Kogan, who was also using that for his research that he gave to Cambridge Analytica, which was created in 2013. And so there's interesting decisions that were ha happened there. We shut that down in 20, I think 20, it was right after the 2014 election that we stopped allowing some of that social graph stuff. It's actually the Obama campaign got pretty mad at us about because they, some of their, their consultants and stuff were trying to push that to be used in the 2015 UK election and, and stuff like that. Ads started to go into newsfeed rather than just being on the side. And so now you had a lot more space and ads were now being intermingled with organic content in that, in that time. Twitter was a huge uh, competitor for us in terms of, and a lot of pressure on us to work on getting politicians, public figures, celebrities, others using Facebook, because a lot of them were choosing to use Twitter because it was easier. And so there was a lot of competition around who could, who should be using which, which platforms. I would then, we could smatter in some stuff from 2015 around the beginning of the 2016 election, stuff like that. But then we would definitely need us a part on starting with May 9th, 2016. I will never forget this date because two things happened. One, it was the Philippines election where Rodrigo Duterte won. Um, and if any of you have been following anything that's been happening in the Philippines around press freedoms and how Duterte is trying to crack down and all that stuff, the Philippines was actually sort of the beginning of some of this where we really should start paying attention um, that was also the day, so I was in Manila about to do, I was doing press hits about the conversation we were seeing on Facebook. So Manila is probably about 
16 hours ahead of 14 hours ahead of East Coast Wisconsin time. So I look at my phone right before I'm about to do another hit and I see a story from Gizmodo about some former contractors at Facebook claiming that they were told to suppress conservative content. And I look at my colleague and I say, I hand her my phone and I say, I really hope news doesn't travel across the Pacific that fast. Uh, I do my hit, thank goodness it had not, but then I hightail it back to my hotel room, work on getting my butt back to DC because now we're trying to figure out, we've got a whole bunch of angry Republicans, uh, elected officials, others who are wanting to know what the heck had happened. I thank God had uh, Wi-Fi on my flight from, because um, I think I from Manila to Tokyo, Tokyo to like Detroit, Detroit to DC, landed, and we decided we were going to do, we were going to have about 10 or 15 influential figures in the Republican conservative movement go out to Menlo Park to meet with Mark and Cheryl. So you've got that meeting that happens. Then, so that's May, that's like end of May. Fast forward a couple more weeks, Brexit happens and the leave campaign wins and there's a bunch of questions about oh my god how did that happen then fast forward to november of 2016 and you have trump's you have trump's win and overnight it felt like overnight the this like everything shifts and there had been an economist cover story in the late in september 2016 about post-truth politics and i remember thinking oh man this is going to be something we've really got to figure out for the German and French elections in 2017. And the initial stories coming out of the election when President Trump won wasn't foreign interference. It was about fake, false news, whatever word you want to use, Macedonian teenagers who were pushing it to make money because they were trying to get clicks. And also a lot of questions of what did the Trump team do? Like what was their advertising? What, what was their secret sauce for lack of a better term that they had used which started to push, um, Facebook created its fact-checking program in December of 2016. In the spring of 2017, we actually started thinking about what political ad transparency would look like. And then I went on, um, every five years you're at the company, the fa Facebook gives you a month off as a recharge. So you gotta take it all at once. So I did that in June of 2017. And then I came back and then that fall, we announced that we had found the Russian ads on our platform. That happened, we had our first congressional hearing in October, and then in March of 2018 is when Cambridge Analytica happened. And so then I think you'd have a series of things, since we're still in movie land, a series of things still throughout the movie of, and what's interesting throughout this too is like, Facebook's also expanding in terms of innovation, right? Mark is buying WhatsApp, he buys Oculus. There's workplace for Facebook, Messenger gets split out. So there's going to be an interesting like innovation and like public policy storylines that should be weaved through without in terms of where the company is and some of these like recreating some of these major decisions that had to be ha had culminating and like the most major one I want to say of like President Trump being deplatformed off of the during January 6th. There's no shortage of there's no shortage of interesting stories to make this movie. Absolutely. It's extremely fascinating. And I'm so glad that we have your ear here and we have you able to talk to us. Can you give us some of your like key professional developments that you honed in on or you really developed uh, during your time at Facebook? 
Yeah, I've um, I actually wrote to the company when it, before I left. I had about like twenty different ones, and I'll share a few of them that I I sort of learned. I learned throughout it. The first was really learning how to frame up a decision and the trade-offs that went into these decisions. These are not easy decisions. If they were, everybody would be making them and we wouldn't be having all the conversations that we're having now. And I really learned that from the product team. Some of the methods that they have of being able to frame those up and put stuff onto like a single slide and doing that. But um, both how to frame up decisions and also how to be very concise and how to write the right type of email, especially when you're speaking upward to an executive office, they don't have a lot of time. We were huge compo- proponents of the TLDR, too long, didn't read, that would be at the top of an email. <laughs> it's like, here's my thesis sentence. Here's my, you know, and this is what you learn from journalism school, right? Like, put the lead up at the top. <laughs> and so, Yet another thing Katie Culver taught me from J202 that came in handy in a way you wouldn't have thought that it that it would. A couple of the other things too also is no one's going to give you a roadmap of your career. No one's going to walk up to you and say, here's the map. No one's going to care about your career more than you. It's tough to hear <laughs> sometimes. And there's people who are going to care and they're going to want to help you. But like, you have to take control. You have to take control and you have to decide like what is best for you and what it is that you you want to do and what does that look like? And so I started to get into the habit of, I tried to at least once a year, um, but at least every other year, kind of taking stock and looking at, okay, what experiences and where do I want to be in the next two years, five years, 10 years, et cetera. Is it likely going to change? Heck yes. It will, especially your longer term stuff. But I think it's, we can get so caught up in the day to day that it's hard to, that you don't take time to kind of think about those longer term, those longer term goals and vision. I think it's important too, to think about, and as you are growing in career, do you want to be a manager or not? Um, At Facebook, we call them individual contributors, people that were just on their own. They didn't have people that they managed versus those folks that that did have that did have folks. Being a manager is very different than being an individual contributor. Um, when you're an individual contributor, you're you're doing a lot of the work. You're, you know, you're you're in it day to day and you've got, you know, maybe it's a project that you're doing or something like that. When you're a manager, you're gonna be spending more time helping people work through their problems, on block problems that they're gonna that they're having. They're looking to you for the strategic high-level vision of where it is that you want them to go. They're looking to you to give them context of different decisions the company's making or the direction they're going and what they should be doing. But you're not doing as much of like the individual contributor work that you were before. It's still very good work and it's still very important, but being a manager is not for everyone. And I worry that I see a lot sometimes that people think the only way for them to move up in an organization is to actually manage teams. And one of the things I liked about Facebook is you could get as high as a director level, which is where I was, with being an individual contributor. After that, you did start to have to have teams of folks, but it's something to to think about as you're doing your own personal development of what it is that you actually like or don't like, because um, I think it's an important choice to make around what it is that you that you want to, that you want to do. You also just have to always stay learning. 
the skill sets and like it's you always have to stay learning the other thing too is like unlike our parents who probably stayed at the same company for 30 or 40 years that's not how i see most people's careers going right now you know in politics i change jobs every year and a half to two years facebook was my longest running one but like i've been talking about my job within facebook probably changed three or four times in that 10 years that i was there and so there's an adaptability and the thing, the last thing I'll say is like, the only thing I can guarantee to anybody is change. The only constant thing that I, that you can expect. And so learning how to live and roll with change is going to be really important. This was something I learned a lot in the Facebook culture as, as well. Adam Sam, I can't remember which movie asked me this question, but it was, it's part of the culture there to question Mark and leadership. Um, and they do, he does regular Q and A's where, where people are, are to do that. It is an art though, to figure out constructive ways to challenge the status quo, to challenge decision-making. There are ways to, there are ways to do it. And that's one of the things I learned how to do well also was like how to constructively challenge a debate and have, and have a good debate with people about things and really approach things with trying to make sure I was listening to where the other person was, was coming from. We had this saying of assuming good intent, assuming good intent on the other side of those who made made the decision, and in learning how to. And there's a great course that they, that they taught at Facebook, and I think this book is available too, called Crucial Conversations, which really teaches you how to have some of those. And they do some role playing and stuff like that too, um, because I agree. I think some people just haven't been taught those skills of like how to do that. And then they might be putting themselves into some questionable spots about, you know, karma, in my mind, karma exists. The stuff you do and the stuff you say and the people you say it to and how that works, at some point in time, it's probably gonna come back to bite you in some way, shape or form. And so in general, I always keep that in mind in terms of how I'm trying to have conversations with folks because the number of times 10, 15 years down the line, that person crosses my path again and I have to, I have to work with them or something like that happens more often than you think. Yeah. With that, we want to, of course, make sure we get in the question to ask you about Anchor Change, which is uh, a company that you have started now. Um, so first, just for a little bit of background, if we could just ask about like the goals and missions of the company, but also you know, a lot of people at the UW-Madison also like to think of themselves as having that entrepreneurial spirit. So we're really curious as to why and when you decided to start your own company and how you would advise others to make that decision. So again, it started, you know, last year I started having more conversations with folks as I was considering leaving, leaving the company. Um, and I, you know, started putting together lists of potential folks that I, I wanted to, to reach out to. Um, I put together the, the experiences that I wanted to get that, that uh, go around, it's democracy and tech globally overall, but then the three pillars are work around mentorship, voice, and building things that I wanted to do. And so I talked to some folks and I was like, whether or not I should go full-time into a company, I thought about the pros and cons of that. And I really started to think about, okay, what are the things that when I really sit with each of those things, what makes me the most excited? And it became clear to me over having those conversations that trying to put together a portfolio of projects rather than going full-time into somewhere made the most sense, made the most sense for me. 
I did the math around finances and figuring out like how long, what sort of cushion I had, what sort of like, what was my monthly budget, like my monthly budget that I knew I needed to try to at least cover that much money every month to cover my mortgage and, and different things of that nature. And even, and got the, uh, I knew I was in talks with the bipartisan policy center around that particular fellowship. And so it was still super scary, just like leaving Madison to move to DC. Like there's, there's still parts to me, it's a mix of terror and excitement of like, is this gonna work? Is it not gonna work? Stuff of that nature, which is, which is great, but it, it, I'm really happy with it right now. Again, I'm a month in, we'll see, check in with me within a year and see where I'm, see where I'm at um, on it. But yeah, I decided to call it Anchor Change because I was playing around with a bunch of different names and there was a name called Anchor Leap that somebody had suggested for me. And then, but what I liked about Anchor Change was that there's a combination of what I'm trying to do of be grounded in reality, but then also helping people to think about how they need to change how they think about how they're doing business, about where tech and policy is, stuff like that. And there's an the element of change and then trying to make that change permanent of, of what they're doing. So that's what I liked about the, the name. And I'm looking at doing uh, more speaking and stuff like this, doing fellowships in like teaching at universities, looking at doing, so just stuff around tech policy, um, engaging with politicians and governments and elections type of work, especially online overall. It seems extreme, like an extremely exciting time, especially, you know, now that things are opening up and, you know, the world is starting to return to something akin to normal. Uh, but we want to make sure that we are cognizant of your time. And we want to ask you, is there anything that we have not talked about yet that you think our students need to know? I think just to definitely dream big, definitely be thinking about, there's a lot of there's a lot of different opportunities, um, particularly in this in this space. And I would say there's stuff even for, for those that are graduating, like the midterms are coming up if you're wanting to get involved in politics, like those campaigns are starting probably here in the fall and stuff. So start looking for those that you can that you can do. There's gonna be a few races there in Wisconsin that folks can that folks can work on. And even if you're still not graduating right away, like volunteering on some of those campaigns. Being in Madison is a great place um, to be able to do that and get some of those um, experiences as you're doing it. But otherwise, I just encourage folks, um, follow me on Twitter. I'm at Katie Harbath, where I'm going to be putting stuff. If you go to my website, anchorchange.com, you can see past speeches and stuff. I just gave one at the La Follette School a couple weeks ago on this topic. Um, that's where you can go sign up for my Substack newsletter, TBD, about when I'll be launching that. But it's a good place to just kind of um, stay up to date with me, along with everywhere else on the internets, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn. It's all at Katie Harbath. And then the last question that we've been asking all of our guests is, you know, it's been a really long and at times really dark and stressful year in global politics. And we've been asking all of our guests to end with something that makes them hopeful right now. So we want to ask you, what's just one thing that you find hope from in your life? There's a lot of good that has come from the internet being a part of democracy and people being able to organize on the internet. There's, a, there's been a lot of good. There's a lot of work to do to mitigate the bad, but I truly believe that we can get to an equilibrium where we can amplify the good and mitigate the bad. And if you're wanting to make a change in the world right now, 
figure out the ways that you can go and do work and figuring out that balance. That is an excellent way to leave us off. Thank you so much for joining us today, Katie. Thanks for having me. For more information about 1050 Bascom, visit polysci.wisc.edu and search for 1050 Bascom. 1050 Bascom is edited by Adam Wigger and Sam Beisman, produced by Amy Gangle and recorded remotely for now.